Well, beloved listeners, did you know that in the 19 years to 2003, so that's from 1914, Australia went to war nine times? And the prospect of war has been mooted often controversially, of course, in the last couple of years. Now, how that all-important decision has been made in the past to commit our nation to war is the subject of a new book by military historian David Horner. It's called The War Game, Australia's war leadership from Gallipoli to Iraq. David Horner is Emeritus Professor in Strategic and Defence Studies at the ANU. And this book, well, he's a bit of a Goliath when it comes to books because this is his uh, 37th. David, a pub trivia question. Remind us of those nine wars. Some are obvious, but others might have slipped the mind. Yes, well, well, I took the 90 years from uh, beginning in 1914. 1914 is when we went to the First World War. Then in 1939, we went to the Second World War. In 1950, we uh, went to the Korean War. And about the same time, we were involved in the Malayan emergency with more troops deployed as the decade went along. Uh, Then we got involved in the uh, Indonesian confrontation with Malaya, which turned into Malaysia. That was followed by the Vietnam War. Uh, Then we were involved in the Gulf War uh, in 1990-1991. And then we had two wars that we got involved in uh, in more recent times, in in 2001, uh, Afghanistan, and in 2003, in Iraq. So for that period from 1914 to 2003, it's really 89, but let's call it 90 years, nine wars. And you make the point that you could effectively split World War II into two wars, the European and then the Pacific. Uh, that is right. Uh, the The decision to go to war in 1939 was not controversial, although some people have subsequently said, you know, why did we get involved in this war in Europe? And then when Japan attacked in December 1941, there was no question that we had to be involved in that war and Australia became under threat. So in that way, there were sort of two wars within the one Second World War. Now, the decision to commit us to war hasn't always been in our hands, has it? Uh, no, it hasn't. Um, in the First World War, uh, we were still part, of, very much part of the British Empire and uh, and we were bound up with the British Empire. So really, there wasn't much choice. You know, if, if Britain was at war, Australia was at war. It was slightly different in the Second World War, although the government still thought that part of the empire uh, and as a consequence Australia would be at war. Uh, but of course it hasn't been quite the same in more subsequent wars where we've had a lot more manoeuvre room in deciding whether we go to war or not. Now the next step of course is determining the scale of the commitment and you point out that in World War One, that was pretty much cut and dried before the war had formally started. Well, that is the remarkable thing. Before it formally started, we had already uh, offered troops to Britain. Uh, and uh, uh, so the idea of sending forces overseas had really been dis- determined before the actual outbreak of the war. But as the war went on, we then decided to increase our commitment to a level which 
we found very hard to sustain in the First World War, and that led to the conscription uh, debates uh, and referendums. Now, of um, course, in more recent years, since the Korean War, <laughs> Australia has sought to keep its commitment to a minimum, and uh, I recall John Howard's skill in regards to Iraq. Well, that is right. Since the Korean War, the Australian government has generally tried to keep our commitment as small as we possibly can while winning some uh, kudos from our commitment. And that was particularly the case in the, uh, in the invasion of Iraq, where our commitment was, uh, was really very small, but it was very carefully managed uh, because committing very early to the Americans, the Americans saw them, well, that's great, we've got somebody uh, supporting us. Committing very early uh, meant that we could get some sort of respect from the Americans without making a large commitment. Now, there's a paradox here, David. Uh, Bob Woodward came on the program and told us that uh, John Howard's drum beating was very influential in getting George W. to go forward, and yet he has this manoeuvring skill to minimise potential fatalities. Oh, that is right. Um, and I wrote in the book that the way John Howard managed the commitment of Australia to the 2003 invasion of Iraq was very cleverly done and it was very well managed. Well, that doesn't mean to say it was necessarily the correct decision, but the management of it was very clever. And uh, it seems that he had decided very early in the piece that we would be involved. And having decided very early in the piece that we'd be involved, uh, it then had to be managed in such a way that we got the maximum uh, advantage from doing it without having a large commitment of forces and also making sure that the forces were committed in a way that kept the casualty very, very low. In fact, nobody was killed in that invasion. The one thing he failed to manage, of course, was public opinion. Now, let the record show, as you point out, that most Prime Ministers, whose call it is or has been to commit us to war, had no war experience except my old friend uh, John Gordon, whose face, of course, bore the battle scars. Well, it did, but John Gordon, uh, and I've got a quote in the book where he says, I'm certainly no trained strategist. So he understood that while he might have been a, a fighter pilot uh, in the Second World War and, as you mentioned, uh, uh, got damaged when his plane crashed, uh, he didn't have any particular expertise in, in higher-level strategic and defence issues. Well, that takes us to the next point. It's very important that a Prime Minister trust and respect their chief military adviser. Who is the, of course, the chief of the Defence Force? And then, of course, there are the field military commanders whose job it is to perform in the best interest of Australia. How have we fared with these two different types of military advisers, David? Well, the yes, the, the military advisor uh, in the past, there were three chiefs in the Army, Navy and Air Force, and more recently we have a single chief, the chief of the Defence Force. And these have generally been uh, very experienced people. Although early in the piece, uh, say in the Second World War, the Navy and the Air Force chiefs were British officers. So we had British officers advising the Australian government on matters of, uh, of high policy. But more recently, they have been obviously Australians. Now, there was an ominous portent from 42 to 45 because the government's principal military advisor was the uh, legendary and perhaps notorious Douglas MacArthur. 
And that is right. And, and now, I suppose you might say that uh, Australian government really didn't have any option at that time other than to pass the, the running of its forces over to a foreign American general who commanded, not only commanded all the Australian forces in the Southwest Pacific area, but also became the principal military advisor to Prime Minister John Curtin, uh, thereby edging out the Australian Chiefs of Staff and, and General Blamey. And uh, this was not really a very good thing in that obviously MacArthur had the the interests of himself in the United States foremost in his mind. I'm glad you put his own interests first because that was very much his personality. Oh, yes. He, he was uh, very keen to, uh, to get back to the Philippines and uh, he saw that as his personal wish. It may have well have aligned with the American government, but it was his personal <laughs> wish. Now, there's a tension, David, to the extent to, to which the government should just leave it in the hands of the military to carry out their policy, hands-on or hands-off? Uh, this is this is a very big question. Uh, not only hands-on or hands-off, but so how far down should the, should the government delve? I mean, after all, they've handed the, the running of the military over to the military and the military are supposed to have the expertise to do it. But on the other hand, it is the government's responsibility to ensure that what's happening on the battlefield is in accordance with what the Australian government wants to happen. And so uh, the question then is how far down should should the minister, minister of defence or the prime minister, get involved? And in the Vietnam War, we saw a fairly hands-off approach by respective prime ministers and defence ministers until Malcolm Fraser became the defence minister. And then he, he really did want to get down and make sure that what was happening was in, in accordance with government policy. I'm talking to David Horner, military historian and author of The War Game, Australian War, Leadership from Gallipoli to Iraq. And uh, while you say that expert military advice is crucial, it is not the only advice. Enter stage left, a war cabinet. Uh, that is right. Uh, in the First World War, we did not have a war cabinet, but in the Second World War, uh, the Menzies government established a war cabinet. A war cabinet is is the, a small number of senior ministers who deal with the running of the war. Uh, and in subsequent wars, we have not had a war cabinet, but quite often the government has established a small committee to assist the Prime Minister in these matters. And at the moment, we have one called the National Security Committee of Cabinet. And it was that National Security Committee of Cabinet that decided to get us into the 2003 Iraq War. David, who's invited to be involved in a war cabinet? I guess the service chiefs. Well, the War Cabinet consists of senior ministers. We're probably talking of something in the order of 10 senior ministers. You can imagine Minister for Defence, Army, Navy, Air Force and so on. Uh, the service chiefs, back when we had Army, Navy, Air Force, the service chiefs, but now with one service chief, he's not a member of the War Cabinet, but he is invited to come along and give his advice. Uh, that's almost a permanent arrangement, but nonetheless, he's he's there. He's not a decision maker. He is there to provide advice. David, was has an opposition leader ever been involved in a war cabinet? Uh, no, but in the Second World War, the Menzies government established what they called the Advisory War Council. 
the Menzies government was only being kept in power by the vote of two independents. And so to give the opposition an involvement in running the war, Menzies established the Advisory War Council, which consisted of about five government and five opposition members. It was not a decision-making body, it was advisory, but it was really important because it meant that the leader of the opposition, John Curtin, got involved in the strategic decision issues, and when he eventually became Prime Minister, he was in much better position to to run the war as Prime Minister. And he was prepared to deal with uh, MacArthur. Well, he was prepared to deal with MacArthur. Very odd, of course, that, that Curtin, from the, the left wing uh, of politics in Australia, dealing with a man from the right wing of politics in, in, in America. But they uh, they got on well together. Uh, and, of course, as we know, MacArthur said, you know, Prime Minister, uh, you, you look after the rear and I'll look after the front. Now, Gorton dis- disregarded the uh, FAD committee to the detriment of good policy making, as you point out. What about Hawke? Now, Hawke did not have a war cabinet or a national security committee of cabinet, but he did, in effect, have one in that he had a small group of ministers who got together to decide whether we're going to go to the uh, the Gulf War or not. So it was that small committee uh, that decided, and then having decided that you then had to go back to the cabinet to get approval. But uh, yeah, that wasn't a really big problem because already uh, this small group had decided, it included people like like Keating and, uh, and Beasley and so on. Now, we're talking wars, but uh, let's do a quick detour to uh, peacekeeping missions like East Team or, or uh, Solomon's. Does that also involve some sort of uh, collective decision-making? Oh, it certainly does. And I was the official historian for Australian peacekeeping. And one of the comments I used to make is that uh, we, the government, gave more consideration as to whether we were going to go and assist in Somalia than it did to get us into the First World War. And each one of these peacekeeping missions that we've been involved in, I mentioned Somalia, Rwanda, East Timor and so on, are matters of, of very important policy that have to be worked out by the government. Do we send our forces away from Australia across the world to Somalia or do we keep them back in Australia to defend Australia? So they're the sorts of decisions that the government had to make for peacekeeping. I know you were opposed to the uh, invasion of Iraq uh, on, as, as so many of us were. Have we always been on the wrong side of history? Well, I mean, it's 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 not quite as uh, as easy to uh, to give an answer you know, as yes or no on that one. Uh, but now, in retrospect, you can see uh, our decision making process to get us into the Vietnam War was faulty. Uh, on the other hand, the decision making process to get us into the Malayan emergency. Uh, as it turned out, we were on the right side. And and as the official historian of that period has pointed out, the government uh, got us into the Malayan emergency against a lot of opposition and it was proved to be right. So on, on that basis, they thought, oh, we're, we're on a winner here and uh, applied the same process to get us into the Vietnam War. And, of course, it didn't turn out the same way. Let's go back to the issues that have bedeviled Australia. One of them is access to allied strategic decision-making. 
Now, that is, that is a really big issue because uh, we send our forces off to fight under the command um, earlier on of uh, a British commander, more recently under an American commander. Uh, and in fact, we hand over our forces and then we have no uh, way of ensuring that they're deployed in the way that we'd want them to be deployed. With that in mind, Prime Minister Billy Hughes in the First World War tried to get into the British-based Imperial War Cabinet uh, to see if uh, he could have some influence there. Again, in the Second World War, Menzies tried to uh, get involved in the British War Cabinet. Curtin tried to influence um, what was going on uh, with Churchill and Roosevelt. But essentially, they just don't want to, don't, don't want to listen to what Australia's got to say. Uh, and what I have written is that we've, this is one issue that we've constantly got to be hammering away at to get some way of influencing the strategic decision-making of our big, powerful allies. The lesson for Australia is to remain constantly vigilant and the prime task for war leaders is to manage Australia's role in the alliance. Now, access to intelligence goes with that as well. Access to intelligence or more broadly just information. Now, remembering back in the First World War, the only representatives that we had overseas was the High Commissioner in London. Uh, and therefore, we, we were relying on the intelligence and the views of the British British Foreign Office and so on. Uh, but gradually, we were able to get, as years went by, get the representatives overseas. And we started to get them during the, the Second World War. So we, we get advice from our foreign policy people. But we also need to get advice from our intelligence gathering people. And we've only developed that capacity gradually over the century. And then the big question comes, is the government going to listen to this intelligence that they, that, that they get? And many people would say the government only wants to listen to the intelligence that, uh, or, or hear the intelligence that backs up what they've already decided. That's a very familiar human failing, David. Now, the, the wilier Prime Minister is able to manage the politics at home, both divisions within his own party and criticisms from the opposition. Ah, well, that's the, I, I've written in the book that one of the big issues is that the the Prime Minister has to manage the politics. Billy Hughes, for example, in the in the First World War, split his own party, the Labor Party, over the conscription issue. Many people have criticised Menzies' war leadership in the first two years of the Second World War. Uh, it's not as bad as a lot of people try to portray, but what he couldn't do is manage the politics. And by not managing the politics, he soon found himself uh, out, of, out of the job. On the other hand, somebody like Hawke and Howard managed the politics uh, very well. Hawke, of course, had to manage the politics not just uh, against the opposition but within, the, within his own party. He also tried to handle them with the media. When I started doing this, the, uh, the first Gulf War was raging and uh, Bob got very cranky with some of the people we chose to, uh, to discuss it on the program. So how likely is it, David, that Prime Ministers, perhaps our current one, will be considering all these factors when there is no imminent war? What I have written in the book and what I've said elsewhere is how are we going to, how does a Prime Minister prepare himself for these sorts of issues? And one way he prepares himself 
is by uh, sitting in the National Security Committee of Cabinet that we've got at the moment, which deals with the problems of international security. So he needs to become familiar with those issues uh, so that if, if, if the situation deteriorates, he's across the issues and doesn't get caught uh, you know, un, unprepared. David, I think it's fair to say that one hot tip you give our current leadership is not to blindly follow the US, a view I wholeheartedly endorse. David, thanks for coming on. I've been talking to David Horner, military historian, emeritus professor at the ANU, and we've been discussing his 37th book, the War Game, Australian War Leadership from Gallipoli to Iraq, and it's published by Allen and Unwin. Thanks, David. Well, thank you very much, Philip. Find more great ABC RN stories that take you beyond the headlines on the ABC Listen app.